Section 24 of Stratagems and Conspiracies to Defraud Life Insurance Companies. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Stratagems and Conspiracies to Defraud Life Insurance Companies. An Authentic Record of Remarkable Cases by John B. Lewis and Charles C. Bombal. Homicide, Part 1, Poisoning and More Violent Forms of Assassination. In revolving our many-sided picture, we next come to the tragic side, the portion we're on, the darker shadows fall. Here, to the eagerness of the speculator and the calculation of the gamester, is added the fiendishness of deliberately planned and relentlessly pursued homicide. And in view of the fact that the victim is generally selected from that relationship or that friendship, which will sustain an insurable interest, we may well exclaim, Murder must foul, as in the best it is, but this most foul, strange, and unnatural. If we scan the biography of the homicides who have left their names on the scroll of infamy, we find that many of them were patterns of gentlemanly grace and fastidious polish. But under the surface, show of refinement and complacence was the serpent's fang. The velvet glove concealed a bloody hand. Gilding and sugar-coating masked the poison that had been smuggled into the salutary drug prescribed as a restorative. Probably no one of this class ever equaled Thomas Griffith Wainwright, the literary coxcomb, who, under the nom de plume of Janus Weathercock, wrote such slashing reviews and spicy criticisms in the English magazines on art and artists, the drama, the opera, and the ballet. A fine person and fascinating manners, great fluency and ready wit, he was not only an acknowledged leader of fashion, but such a favorite in aristocratic circles that even the gentle and amiable Charles Lamb could not help writing of him. Kind, light-hearted Janus Weathercock. Nor did he ever sparkle with such unwanted gaiety or so outshine his accustomed elegance as while the poison he was secretly administering was speeding on its deadly errand. It is nearly a half-century since Helen Abercrombie's young life was sacrificed by this brother-in-law in hope of gaining 18,000 pounds. But many another half-century will roll around before the circumstance will be forgotten in England. Whoever follows his career can easily understand why Mr. Francis observes of him. It was death to stand in his path. It was death to be his friend. It was death to occupy the very house with him. Well might his associates join in that portion of the litany, which prays to be delivered from battle and murder and sudden death. For sudden death was ever by his side. Yet, in point of resolute daring and infrequency of repetition, Wainwright's methods of assassination were tame compared with those of William Palmer, the sporting surgeon, a history of whose crimes is here presented to the reader. William Palmer of Rugeley. 
In the valley of the Trent, on the line of the Northwestern Railway of England, lies the quiet, pretty town of Rugeley. It is about midway between the great sporting grounds of Derby and of Chester, and is well known for its jockeys and its horse fairs. Among the fields and the trees which make the town, like almost every English country town, enchantingly beautiful, is an old square house of brick standing on the shores of the river, with gardens sloping to the margin. With the generations to come, it will very likely be called a haunted house, and the yews which darken the doorstep will nourish murderous memories in their shadow. A wood merchant lived years ago in this square brick house, who made the building what it is only after acquiring, very suddenly and very mysteriously, a large fortune. His business was not extensive. He was known to be a betting man, yet he lived extravagantly. We had a family of five sons and two daughters, and one day suddenly and mysteriously died. Of the five sons, one became a clergyman, one a grain merchant, another an advocate, a fourth a lumber merchant, and the fifth, whose name was William Palmer, studied chemistry in Liverpool and became a surgeon. At the time, 1856, public attention was attracted to the crimes which have made his name famous. Palmer was only 35 years of age. He was a man of fine presence and winning manners. He had played in his youth the country roué and had married, some years before, the natural daughter of Colonel Brooks of the East India Service. Colonel Brooks was a man of fortune. He was mysteriously assassinated not long after the marriage of his daughter. By his will, he had bestowed upon the mother of his child a life lease of his estate. The daughter, Mrs. William Palmer, was remarkable for her beauty as well as for her kindness of heart. And the poor people of Rugeley have always a good word for the memory of Mrs. Palmer. William Palmer seemed to give himself up to two fancies of a very opposite nature, to wit, horse racing and chemical experiments in his private laboratory. The first involved a full purse. His private resources became speedily exhausted. He appealed to his mother-in-law, who, anxious in regard to her daughter's happiness and suspicious of the dissolute habits of her son-in-law, left her own home and came to establish herself with her daughter at Rugeley. Four days after her entrance in Palmer's house, she died suddenly. The property of which she was in possession passed into the hands of Mrs. Palmer and under the control of the husband. New stables were built at Rugeley, new horses purchased, new bets entered, new acquaintances made, and new debts contracted. The Jewish money lenders of London were appealed to, and money loaned at enormous rates. Meantime, four of his children died suddenly, at intervals of one or two years. Only one remained as heir to the fortune of the mother, which at her death was to pass to the child. Mr. William Palmer, as a measure of precaution, secured an insurance upon the life of Mrs. Palmer for $75,000. The
The physicians testified to her perfect good health, and the premium paid was not exorbitantly high, but was more than he, at that time, was able to pay, as he was so pressed for money that he drew a bill, which was actually discounted on the security of the policies, so that he, with criminal ingenuity, contrived to make the policies pay for themselves. A troublesome claim of 700 pounds, a debt of honor, was held against Palmer by one of his sporting friends named Bladen. This gentleman visited Rugeley to collect the sum, was a guest of Palmer, fell sick at his house, was visited by an old physician, the family advisor of Palmer, was drugged and died. The debt was canceled, and the old physician reported the case as one of cerebral fever. In a little time, perhaps after a year, Mrs. Palmer took a slight cold on a pleasure excursion to Liverpool. The old family physician and a deaf nurse attended her. The husband insisted upon active treatment. The poor lady lingered for a month and died. The pleasant old physician made out his certificate of the cause and time of her decease. It was signed by the nurse and accepted by the authorities of Rugeley, who all admired and flattered that game fellow, William Palmer Esquire. The London Life Assurance Companies paid their losses, and the surgeon Palmer was again afoot for new enterprises on the Derby but he found occasion shortly to negotiate through his Jew friends of London for insurance upon the life of a brother, Walter Palmer, who had been addicted to drinking, who had been threatened with delirium tremors, but who, subject to the special guardianship of his brother William and of the old physician of the family, it was hoped and affirmed by competent examiners, would live for many years to come. The insurance was effected for the sum of 13,000 pounds. The surgeon Palmer employed a man to attend upon his brother and to supply regularly all his wants. Even his own inclination for the bottle was not forgotten by the new guardian. Walter Palmer resisted, however, the influences of gin until a visit from the brother in the autumn of 1855 supplied some stronger stimulant and the wretched drunkard died. Application was made to the London office for the payment of the amount insured, but refused. The application was not renewed. There were those who had seen Palmer on the turf who spoke suspiciously of this circumstance, but who should venture to accuse William Palmer, Esquire, of foul dealing? Did he not own one of the best studs in the country? Had he not been on terms of familiarity with Lord Bentinck? Was he not regular and prompt in his contributions to the parish church of Rugeley? Did not the rector dine with him from time to time and admire his great horses, strychnine and chicken? Was he not become altogether an English country gentleman? At the Shrewsbury races in November 1855, appeared with Palmer a young man of about 28, named John Parsons Cook. Both had large stakes involved, but with different results. The pole star, Cook's horse, won, by which Cook received 2,000 pounds. Chicken, Palmer's horse, was beaten, 
by which Palmer was utterly wrecked. He had taken immense bets, with the hope of winning enough to pay the suits on the 13,000 pounds, forged notes, then pressing upon him. These bets turned against him, and exposure became imminent. But this was not the only difficulty. Palmer had borrowed largely of Cook, who, besides his late winnings, was possessed of a fortune of about 12,000 pounds. By fair or foul means, he had obtained what purported to be Cook's signature to notes to a very large amount. Cook's sudden death could not be other than advantageous to him in the circumstances under which he was placed. It was then, according to the prosecution, that he took measures to bring this death about. Footnote, Wharton and Still's Medical Jurisprudence. On the 5th of November, Cook took lodgings at Rugeley, the town where Palmer lived. His life had been previously dissipated, and he had been suffering much from ulcerations in the throat, the result of venereal excesses. On the 14th of November, the day after the races, Cook and Palmer were drinking together at the inn at Shrewsbury, where, according to Palmer's statements at the time, Cook was more or less affected by liquor. Palmer, towards the end of the evening, was seen mixing some colorless liquid in the passage leading to his room, and shortly afterwards gave some brandy and water mixed by himself to Cook, who drank it, and immediately cried out that there was something in it, that it burned his throat dreadfully. Palmer immediately took the glass, drank what remained, and handed it to a third person to try, who found, however, nothing left. Cook was soon taken very sick, vomiting largely. He recovered, however, enough to be on the race course the next day. The day after, Friday the 15th, he arrived at Rugeley with Palmer. He continued unwell throughout that and the next day, Saturday, when Palmer gave him some coffee, after which he vomited. On Sunday, Palmer caused some broth to be made, which was given to Cook. This broth was tasted by the chambermaid at the inn, who was by it made very ill. On Saturday, Palmer sent for Mr. Bamford, a practitioner at Rugeley, to give his attendance to Cook, and on Monday he wrote to Mr. Jones, who practiced at Lutterworth, telling him that Cook was sick with a bilious attack, and asking his medical services also. Certain pills of an antibilious character were given by Mr. Bamford to Palmer, to be administered to Cook. After sending for Mr. Jones, Palmer went to London on business and returned on the evening of the same day, Monday, to Rugeley. On his return, he went to a druggist with whom he had not been in the habit of dealing and bought three grains of strychnine. When he saw Cook, he administered to him pills which purported to have been those prescribed by Bamford, Cook had, during the day, been much better and had been talking with his jockey and trainer. But an hour after he had taken the pills, the inn was roused by the violent ringing of his bell and by the screams, Murder! Christ have mercy on my soul! 
At once the servants gathered in his room, and he was found in extreme agony on his bed, beating around him with his hands, and in the highest muscular tension. His cry was that he would be suffocated. He was agonized with convulsions, and when a composing drink was given to him, he grit his teeth and snapped at the glass and spoon. His first call when the servants came in was to send for Palmer. Palmer came and remained with him until six o'clock the next morning. Between eleven and twelve on that day, Tuesday, Palmer went to another druggist and bought six grains of strychnine and a small amount of opium. At three o'clock arrived Mr. Jones, the physician from Lutterworth, who was a personal friend of Cook's, whom he found much better. That evening, the two physicians had a consultation with Palmer, Mr. Jones declaring that the symptoms were different from those described to him by Palmer. Mr. Bamford prepared some additional pills which were given by him to Palmer, who at night administered pills from the same box to Cook. Within an hour after taking the pills, Cook was attacked in the same way as on the previous evening. He was in violent spasms. His breathing was almost entirely suspended. His muscular system was strung to the highest tension, and he was so rigid that, when he cried to be lifted up in bed, this was found to be impossible. So great was this stiffness that, when lying with his face upward, his back arched inward, and only his head and heels touched the bed, they bearing his whole weight. He cried to be turned over on his side, which was done, when in a few moments he died quietly. Palmer, who was sent for immediately on the attack, arrived at once and remained until the death. Two days afterwards, Mr. Stevens, Cook's stepfather, came to Rugeley to inquire into the circumstances. He found the body still unburied, and a certificate from Mr. Bamford was given him, to the effect that the death was by apoplexy. His suspicions were excited by his inability to find Cook's betting book, by a claim set up by Palmer against Cook's estate for £4,000, by the anxiety which Palmer showed to make it appear that Cook had lately squandered away all his available funds, and by his effort to have the body buried at the earliest moment. Mr. Stevens went at once to London and made arrangements for a post-mortem examination. This took place at Rugeley, in the presence of several medical men, Palmer being in attendance. No symptoms of disease were discovered, except the ulcers on the tongue, which have been already mentioned, and some white granules on the lower part of the spine. With some carelessness, the stomach and intestines were taken out and placed in a jar, and it was noticed first that while the operator was at work, he received a push, communicated apparently through Palmer, which produced some disarrangement, and second, that the jar was afterwards removed by Palmer towards the door, ostensibly for the purpose of greater convenience, and was then found with two cuts through the parchment, which had been placed over its mouth. It is clear, however, that its contents had not been tampered with, though it was in evidence that Palmer told the boy who was employed to drive Mr. Stevens and the jar to the station that he would give ten pounds to see the jar upset. 
Such was the evidence of the prosecution, though on cross-examination the witness who testified to the last point seemed to leave it uncertain whether it was Stevens or the jar that Palmer so much desired to see thus disposed of. The stomach and intestines were analyzed by Dr. Taylor, an eminent toxicologist of London. The result was that a little antimony was discovered, but no strychnine or prussic acid. Dr. Taylor and Dr. G. Owen Reeves certified accordingly, adding that it was now impossible to say whether any strychnine had or had not been given just before death. When Dr. Taylor, however, became acquainted with the symptoms, he changed his opinion, holding, as subsequently advised, that the death was produced by strychnine. So great was the local excitement that Parliament, at Lord Campbell's suggestion, passed a bill transferring the venue to the Metropolitan Court of the Old Bailey in London. The case came on for trial on May 14, 1856. The main strain of the trial was on the question whether the non-detection of strychnine in the remains was to be conclusive. Testimony, though not of the highest order, was adduced by the prisoner to prove that it was. On the other hand, the Crown produced very high authorities to show that strychnine acts by absorption into the blood, and thence it passes into the nervous system, that it exhibits itself peculiarly and distinctively by a violent, spasmodic convulsion and rigidity of the muscles, particularly those of the chest, that death is finally produced by suffocation, and that, as only the excess of poison beyond what is necessary to produce death remains in the stomach, no trace is to be found when only the minimum dose is given. That Palmer was acquainted with the way in which the poison acts was evident from the fact of a notebook of his being found in which the page was turned down at a point containing description of death by strychnine. From Lord Campbell's charge to the jury, we extract the following important passages. You have evidence of strychnia, having been procured by the prisoner on the Monday night before the symptoms of strychnia were exhibited by Cook, and by the evidence of Roberts, undenied and unquestioned, that on Tuesday six grains of strychnia were supplied to him. Supposing you should come to the conclusion that the symptoms of Cook were inconsistent with death by strychnia, if you think that his symptoms are accounted for by merely natural disease, of course the strychnia obtained by the prisoner on the Monday evening and the Tuesday morning would have no effect. But if you should think that the symptoms which Cook exhibited on the Monday and Tuesday nights are consistent with strychnia, then a case is made out on the part of the Crown. After the most anxious consideration, I can suggest no possible solution of the purchase of this strychnia. The learned counsel for the prisoner told us, in his speech, that there was nothing for which he would not account. The learned counsel did not favor us with the theory, which he had formed in his own mind with respect to that strychnia. There is no evidence... There is no suggestion how it was applied, what became of it. That must not influence your verdict. 
unless you come to the conclusion that the symptoms of Cook were consistent with death by strychnia. If you come to that conclusion, I should shrink from my duty. I should be unworthy to sit here. If I did not call your attention to the inference that if Cook did die from strychnia, that strychnia was administered by the prisoner at the bar. It appeared that, in the middle of November, Palmer was involved in pecuniary difficulties of the most formidable nature, that Cook, the deceased, by winning a race, became master of at least 1,000 pounds. And there is evidence from which the inference may be drawn that the prisoner formed the design of appropriating that money to his own use, that he did appropriate the money to the payment of debts for which he alone was liable, and, if Cook had survived, the fraud must have been exposed. Upon the important question of whether Cook died from natural disease or from poison, we have the evidence of Sir B. Brody and of other most honorable and skillful men who say that, in their opinion, he did not die from natural disease, as they know of no natural disease which will account for the symptoms attending his death. And many say that they believe the symptoms exhibited by him were the symptoms of strychnine. All we know respecting strychnine not being in the body is that in that part of the body, which was analyzed by Dr. Taylor and Dr. Rees, they found none. His lordship then drew attention to the evidence that the deceased had been tampered with by having something put into his brandy and water, broth, etc. The absence of any satisfactory explanation of his having bought strychnine and the behavior of the prisoner after Cook's death, he said, the answer consists of two parts. First, the medical evidence, and secondly, the evidence as to facts. With regard to the medical witnesses on the part of the prisoner, I must observe that, although there were amongst them gentlemen of high honor, consummate integrity and profound scientific knowledge, who came here with a sincere wish to speak the truth, there were also gentlemen whose object was to procure an acquittal for the prisoner. His lordship next read Mr. Harapath's evidence, and, at the close of it, remarked, Mr. Harapath is a very distinguished chemist, and no doubt says what he sincerely thinks. He is of opinion that where there has been death by strychnia, strychnia ought to be discovered. But he seems to have intimated an opinion that the deceased in this very case died by strychnia, and Dr. Taylor did not use proper means to discover it. If you are of the opinion that the symptoms were consistent with death from strychnia, you should consider the evidence given in the case to see whether strychnia had been administered by the prisoner at the bar. These are the questions I again put to you. If you come to the conclusion that these symptoms were consistent with death from strychnia, do you believe that death actually resulted from the administration of strychnia and that strychnia was administered by the prisoner at the bar? Do not find a verdict of guilty unless you believe that the strychnia was administered by the prisoner at the bar. But if you believe that, it is your duty to God and man to find the prisoner guilty. 
At the conclusion of this address from the Lord Chief Justice, the jury retired from the court. They re-entered their box after an absence of one hour and 17 minutes, having found a verdict of guilty. The prisoner was subsequently executed, and, though the question was greatly agitated, both medical and legal opinion have settled down into the belief that the conviction was right. The body of Mrs. Ann Palmer, the wife of the prisoner, had been lying 15 months in the grave under a professional burial certificate of death from bilious cholera, when the sudden death of Cook and the detection of antimony in his body led to the exhumation of the body of this lady. It was found, says Dr. Taylor, who conducted the autopsy and examination, that she died from the effects of antimony, which was detected in all parts of the body. When the history of the illness which preceded death was gone into, it was found that the symptoms were consistent with the effects of tartarized antimony, but not with those of bilious cholera or of any other disease. Antimony had not been prescribed for the deceased during her illness, and it was therefore clear that it must have been administered to her by someone up to within a short period of her death. Footnote, Taylor's Medical Jurisprudence Within a little more than six months after affecting the insurances on her life, the wife died from poison under his immediate superintendence. On her death, the large sums insured were claimed by Palmer and were paid to him by the companies. Although there was at the time some suspicion, there was no inquest or inspection, and the body was hastily buried. It seems that the general respectability of Palmer is social and professional position, together with the two medical certificates of the cause of the wife's death, checked any intention which might have existed on the part of the companies to resist the payment of the policies. It was ascertained that the death of Walter Palmer, the brother of William, was probably caused by prussic acid. Walter had died suddenly in the presence of his brother William and another man of doubtful character, and it was proved that William had, an hour or two before Walter's death, purchased at a druggist's a bottle of prussic acid. At the inquest held on the body of Walter, it was shown that Palmer had directed the man with whom he had placed the brother after the insurance on his life to give him as much brandy as he would take and to keep a quantity of the spirit by his bedside. The brother was a drunkard, but this mode of destroying life was too slow for Palmer's purpose. When the necessity for money increased, he reverted to the potent poison above mentioned and suggested that death had been caused by apoplexy. Palmer subsequently tried, but ineffectually to ensure, to the extent of 25,000 pounds, the life of his groom, George Bates, described by him in his application for the insurance as a gentleman of independent means. And he advised a man named Cheshire, the postmaster of Rugeley, also to affect life insurance to the extent of 5,000 pounds and assign the policies to him. But for the revelation of facts connected with the death of Cook, these two persons, on whose heads a heavy life insurance value had thus been set, would have been the next victims.
End of section 24.